We've talked a lot on this podcast about the benefits to our emotional well-being by adopting a regular creative practice, whether it be daily writing, stitching, singing, for example. But sometimes the positive effects don't just come from the making, but who you're making it with. The work that I started to do at Tender Funerals because I also facilitate a sewing circle for them. And so while I'm working with other people, it's also about a space for me to make this work. And it, so it's as much for me as for others. Right, so it's it's a, almost like the social interaction is where the healing was happening. Uh, yes, yeah. That's Michelle Elliott, textile artist, teacher and artist-in-residence at Tender Funerals. I'm Jennifer Macy. This is In The Making, a podcast by Makeshift that explores creativity as a prescription for challenging times. Michelle Elliott's work is often large-scale yet intimate, where memories, grief and mourning are woven into big sheets of cloth with the repetitive and meditative canther stitch. Fabrics are dyed with natural pigments, or scraps of old clothes are used to tell complex stories of love and loss. Michelle's work has been acquired by the Art Gallery of Western Australia, among others, and she's exhibited and worked around Australia and overseas, including India, where she learnt that traditional canther stitch. But it was after a trip to Nepal that Michelle's work changed. She was trekking with friends that she'd met in India as an artist-in-residence when the group found themselves in the middle of a massive natural disaster, the 2015 Gorkha earthquake near Kathmandu. As she tells me in this episode, Michelle returned safely to Australia but suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. In that time, she began to re-evaluate her entire artistic practice and found comfort not only in those repetitive canther stitches but in reconnecting with her local community. And a heads up, this conversation may be confronting for some people, so take care while listening. Hello! Hello! (laughs) Welcome! (laughs) Welcome to the studio. This is nice. Yeah, Nina designed that. Hi, I'm Michelle Elliott. I'm a visual artist and we're here at my studios in Port Kembla. So how much work do you do in your studio? Quite a bit. I love it here. (laughs) Well, because textiles is quite a portable medium, I can just roll things up and you know work at home and sometimes I work in the car you know if we're going obviously if I'm in the passenger seat (laughs) um yeah so that's that's one really great thing about textiles is it's very portable Mm. and in fact one installation I made probably about half of it on the train so you know going backwards and forwards to Sydney I'd be you know stitching um yeah but it's it's a beautiful space um it's really nice do you come here every day uh no a couple of times a week depending on what else is happening um you know there's often all the admin and the boring side of being an artist that i'm so yeah i'm a few days a week Mm. so tell me about this piece um so this work 
It's one of three long uh, panels of white uh, woven cotton. The whole piece is embroidered with text in a red thread and it's the story about um, my father and his family growing up in Kolkata. And so this was part of a much bigger work that I made on my residency in Kolkata when I met all of those um, people who, you know, um, Archana and Paula and... Yeah, so, so you have a lot of connections to Calcutta and Nepal. I do. My family, both of my parents were born there and um, my grandparents were, were there. And in fact, I discovered that my great-great-grandfather was born in Kolkata in the 1850s. So the time that I spent there over the years was really a lot about trying to connect with family history um, but also to make that to make contact with artists because I didn't really want to go there without some sense of learning I I really wanted to learn about um, you know the history of the city um, because as you know it was the capital of the British Empire Mm. and the exhibition that this was in was called Stains on My Chintz and it was about post-colonialism so to go to Kolkata as an artist and make work about the post-colonial coming from Australia you know I had to really I wanted to tread kind of carefully because my history was caught up with their history but you know I'm here as a non-indigenous person living in Australia and so it just became very complicated. So I had to I had to move into this work through the lens of my lived experience through my family and and so your family is Indian or or English. Uh, so one grandfather was Armenian. So they'd been there since the eighteen fifties. Another uh, grandfather was from Melbourne, and one grandmother was Scottish. And my other grandmother was um, Anglo-Indian Burmese. (laughs) So it's just very, yeah, I know. (laughs) So tell me about textiles. How did you get into textiles? Have you always been stitching as a child? I did um, learn to sew when I was a child. Um, And some of my family were dressmakers. Yeah, so I guess I've, I've grown up with that, the language of textiles and the familiarity of using cloth. Um, but when I went to art school, I actually did a painting major. And then uh, later when I went back to do a postgrad, I was in the sculpture studio. So I've moved around in terms of um, disciplines. But what I think ties it all together is my interest in uh, materiality and the language of materials and what what it can express. So whether it's using thread as a as a drawing material, so using thread as line, or um, you know stitching can be about mark making, or sometimes I work with clothing because of that association with the body. You know, I guess what's important to me is how people approach. The work and how they find meaning in it and so working with those kinds of materials 
I think, gives people accessibility to the work without it being too didactic. Yeah. So an entry point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's right. Because textile is so ubiquitous? It is. And um, if you think about textiles in a cultural sense, um, you know, no matter what culture you're um, looking at or thinking about or, or encountering, there's there's some kind of textile tradition and history. And so therefore, I think people relate to that. And also, um, it can be a, a generational thing too, that, um, you know, people will think about, you know, handmade works or handmade textiles being from a different era. And, you know, we're certainly in an era of um, mass production. And that's also an interesting kind of part of the work that I make. I quite like to work with uh, materials that have a, a history, um, a history of the production, a history of uh, usage. And then what I bring to the work is my own layer of transformation. So, Michelle, you've also looked at different types of embroidery from mm -hmm. around the world mm -hmm. and different types of stitching practices, the Japanese dyeing of cloth and also the cantha, the Indian stitching. So what is canther stitch? Oh, canther stitch is uh, it's a technique of running stitch that um, you will find in all those beautiful Indian bedspreads that are like quilted. So they're layers of cloth that are all stitched together with a running stitch and it often is just in parallel lines. And, you know, you see them in um, cushion covers and clothing and it's become, you know, it's a very popular technique. But a friend who lives in Kolkata was using canther stitch in a series of um, prints that was in an exhibition that I was also in in Kolkata in um, 2010 and I'd had a residency there thanks to the Australia Council and um, Paula Sengupta is a printmaker and an art historian and a curator interesting very interesting practice and she was using canther stitch in her work as um, these kind of forms of representing journeys and like a fluid, a fluid line. So thinking about waterways and rivers and I'd become interested in that as a, a medium or as a way of working in textiles. And I used it in that, in that whitewash work because I'd, I'd wanted to stitch lines into those pieces of clothing that that looked a bit like contour lines on a map so thinking about that idea of mapping and journeys and and clothing as a way of representing someone's personal journey uh, so that's where canther came into it and then I really got hooked on it I mean I as a technique it's pretty subtle I think it's not fancy embroidery but you can build up really interesting patterns. And the thing that I love about canther is that when you're stitching layers of cloth together, it's almost like a fusing technique where you're kind of fusing layers of, of cloth to make something new. So, you know, that idea of um, transforming cloth that's had a life somewhere else and, and re reinventing, reinventing it. Mm -hmm. 
So is that how you ended up in Nepal? Oh, Nepal. Well, in fact, um, I went on a trek with um, some of the people that were in that exhibition. So, and we decided that we wanted to go and walk together in um, in the Himalayas. And I think there were seven of us all together. We planned to go up to the Mustang, upper Mustang Valley in um, the north, kind of middle and north of Nepal. It's a very remote part of the country. You had to get a permit to go in there. So it was very, um, not a particularly popular trek, whereas a lot of the other ones, the Annapurna trek, you know, you'd expect to see a lot of people, but we really didn't see many people on that at all. Yeah, it was um, it was amazing. So it's very um, sparsely vegetated. It's a big uh, Tibetan population because they're actually very close. The Mustangs really close to Tibet, and at one point we could see across into Tibet and the mountains there. Wow, I know. Yeah, so that was that was quite a. Um, an interesting and fairly life-changing experience. How so? Uh, well, um, we arrived at uh, Lamantang on the, I think it was the 24th of April, so this is 2015. And unfortunately, I'd become quite ill on the last couple of days of the trek and with a quite a bad chest infection and by the time we were on our last day of the trek I was um I wasn't really able to walk so um two men came past with a horse and I was kind of bundled onto the horse and then you know I got to the destination um arrived at the guest house and basically fell into my bed and fully clothed I just think I managed to get my boots off and um and then and then on the Saturday I woke up to what I thought was the sound of dogs running around on the roof. I mean, I think I was pretty delirious at the time, but there was all of this noise happening above my head. And and then I opened my eyes and there was plaster was falling on my face and I somehow managed to sit up. And yeah, it was it was the earthquake (laughs) so um a big earthquake yeah it was the big earthquake in 2015 and everyone else was out because it was a beautiful day and you know we'd arrived at our destination and we were meant to have a couple of days there just exploring the city and resting and you know having hot showers (laughs) and so I got myself up and managed to get to the doorway and our guide and one of the porters came up and helped me out but by that stage the whole everything was moving it was like this you know um kind of rolling wave and the earth the ground yeah every everything yeah everything was moving and then we we got outside and I was quite delirious I think so I was lay down on the ground and then shortly after was the the big aftershock so um, yeah, I was lying on the ground feeling this with my body. So it was it was quite terrifying. And then everything everything just stopped. And I can't really remember a lot about what happened, but I just remember lots of faces <laughs> above me while I was lying on the road. 
Was the guest house still standing? Yeah, there wasn't, in Lomantan, there wasn't a lot of damage. So no buildings came down and, you know, it was, people were just thinking, oh, it was, you know, it was an earthquake and there was, no one was injured there. And, of course, because of the um, the scale of the, the damage, all of the communications were down so there was no internet and I don't think there was a lot of phone coverage so it took it took a while for information to kind of filter through and we kind of packed up and left so there was also because I was so sick um, they managed to get us a jeep and our whole group started to go move down the mountain and so our aim was to get to Jomsom and hopefully fly back to Kathmandu. How far away were you from the epicentre? Uh, the epicentre was around uh, Langtang which is on the Annapurna Trail so that's um, I think that was that's sort of closer and into Kathmandu and a bit more north. I mean Nepal's not a big country so maybe it was like hundred uh, k's. I, I don't know exactly, mm. um, but the earthquake was felt pretty much. It was felt in India, so pretty big. I don't know what the actual measurement was. Yeah. So as we as we moved down um, in altitude and closer to Jomsom, um, you know, it was became clear how much devastation and how many villages were actually um, affected by that. And, you know, places that we'd been to just days before were completely obliterated. So um, so what was that like, finding out sort of almost through drip feed what had just happened? I mean, you knew it was bad just from the experience of feeling it. Mm. But then what was that like to then slowly find mm. out? It was quite surreal because where we were, there was not really much damage. And I mean, the and it was quite overwhelming for me because I was sick and a bit out of it. You know, I was sort of in another zone. Um, but what happened was when we got to we got to a um, village called Cagbenny, and that was when we started to get some mobile coverage. And I had my phone on, but I hadn't been able to get any messages. And I suddenly got about twenty messages, and it was like, whoa, what's what's all this about? And also we um, we found out that our guide's village, which was um, closer to Langtang, so there were two villages very close together and we found out that those villages were completely devastated and 500 people had been killed, including his father. So that was, that was a real shock because then, you know, we were thinking, well, and what else? You know, how much more... Um, and then Shujoy had a, a message from the Australian consulate in Delhi wanting to know about the Australian citizen that had been evacuated for, um, you know, medical reasons. And they, so they thought that I'd been injured. Um, you know, it was a bit like that drip feed of information. So people were getting bits and pieces of information, as were we. Then we got from Cagbenny to Jomsom, and that was really when when it kind of hit home because um, we realised that there were no fl- all the flights had been cancelled, and most of that village 
were kind of terrified. There was a bad earthquake in the 40s or 30s or 40s and there hadn't been anything like this since then. So there was this incredible sense of fear in the community and people were um, camped out on the airstrip. So everyone everyone in the village had moved out of the, um, their homes and the airstrip was full of mattresses and people were sleeping on the airstrip because, because they, didn't, they didn't feel safe mm. in their homes. And there were a lot of rumours about, well, not just, not unfounded, but about aftershocks mm. because that's, that's often common. And there were, there were a series of aftershocks that went on for weeks, but n- nothing quite as bad as that, that second one. So I think by this stage we'd been in contact with the Australian consulate and they were trying to work out, you know, how to get us and any any other people that were stranded down to Kathmandu and there was a whole series of conversations and emails and text messages and trying to make a plan. So, um, yeah, it was, very, it was very strange. So how long did it take? We then... Because we knew we couldn't get to Kathmandu on a plane because there were no planes. Um, so the next best thing was to get to Pokhara, which should have been, um, you know, like a three, two or three hour bus ride, but it took us 12 hours to get there. We, we did manage to get us, all of us get a seat on a bus and we got to Pokhara to the guest house where we'd stayed before. And so that was a little bit like coming home, you know, it just felt very um, familiar and very comfortable. And also um, our guide, Sham, we'd been trying to... Oh, was he still with you? He was still with us. He didn't want to leave us until he got us to Pokhara. So we were saying, just go. And he was like, no, no, no. So we got to Pokhara, we sent him on his way and basically gave him we just everyone just gave him whatever cash we had we gave him sleeping bags jackets you know whatever we could because that just the fact that he stayed with us for all that time and you know like not even being able to imagine what he was going back to um was so um you know, incomprehensible. And the, just that he, you know, he wouldn't go. <laughs> we were like, just leave. Anyhow, I just have this image of him, you know, leaving on the back of a motor scooter with, you know, all this, these bags of, of stuff. Um, that was kind of relief to get to Pokhara, but also being able to, to know that he could go to his family. I think in my delirium it was like oh maybe we can go and do some volunteering (laughs) you know like what can we do to help and it's like well what can we do you know we're here but feeling completely useless and this is not a a holiday then it just became an imperative to try and get home you know Mm -hmm. to it didn't feel like it was right to be there it was a very strange feeling we got to Kathmandu yeah, so again, we were on another bus and we got there. It was about probably another couple of days before we could organise that. And then um, we flew out that night. 
the whole of the airport were um, like massive rescue crews, um, huge hel- helicopters like I've never seen before, like massive helicopters and a lot of uh, Air Force planes. So a lot of um, rescue teams were coming in from all over the world by this stage. Mm-hmm. So it was, it, was, it was a rescue, a huge kind of rescue operations. happened when you got home? Uh, just felt incredibly relieved. I mean, you know, just to be back in my house, you know, with my partner in my bed, it just was kind of unbelievable. It really felt unbelievable. And all of that whole time in Nepal just felt like another world. I mean, it, it was. And it took me a, it took me a while to feel kind of grounded, but I was still pretty sick. You know, I still had this. I was quite weak, and I had this really bad chest virus or whatever it was. And so I was, yeah. It took me a while to physically recover, and then you know, I guess I kind of felt like I was okay. So I, you know, I got home and immediately went into, oh, what am I going to do? You know, I've got to do something. So what can I do? And we talked about trying to raise some money for um, Sham's village and, you know, to send money to them because they were going to be approaching the um, coming into winter and so people really needed shelter. And so we, we started a fundraiser and from the sofa, you know, under my doona, I was, you know, busy um, raising money to send back and we did, like I think we raised... In Australia, I ended up sending about $8,000, which was incredible. So that was in just over a week. Um, We sent that back and then, um, you know, people over in Kolkata and and London as part of our group were raising money as well. So we were able to send quite a bit of money to Sham's village and they used that to buy tarpaulins and and tin to actually just look after them. Um, And then... You know, then um, I was kind of like, oh, I'm better now and back to work. And I don't know, I, I just was feeling kind of stressed at work. And then I I had another kind of bout of flu or, you know, a bit of uh, respiratory um, illness. And I just, yeah, physically collapsed. And I literally woke up one morning and I couldn't get out of bed I looked at my hands and they were shaking, quite noticeably uh, trembling. And that that went on for a couple of days. And so I, I, I think I'd really kind of confronted or I was confronting a lot of what had happened in Nepal. So it was sort of like this delayed response. And um, How delayed? How many? Uh, probably about four or five months um, after I can't really even sort of rationalise it. You know, it was it was stress, but I felt like my reaction was so overblown, you know, just to being a bit sick. <laughs> it was a bit like, wow, like where is this coming from? Eventually uh, I did make my way back to what happened in Nepal and think about that as being what was um, causing my, my stress. And, you know, just coming to terms with that it was 
quite a traumatic event because when I got home, it was like, oh, this is great. You know, I'm home, I'm safe, I'm over it. You know, it's it's happened and I don't need, you know, it's I don't have to think about it. But, you know, to kind of carry the residue of that was, yeah, it was kind of a surprise when it, it came back because, you know, to think about PTSD... You know, like you think about soldiers that have been, you know, through the experience of war mm. or um, people that have lived through domestic violence or, you know, those those very kind of confronting situations and I'd never really thought about it as in relation to, to the earthquake. In some ways, um, I, I, I feel like that, that um, trembling was a manifestation of the earthquake that I'd kind of carried something of that shaking back with me inside my body and so you know it 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 erupted it was like a little eruption inside me um which and again it took me a while to realize what was going on so it was this kind of strange psych psychological you know like a physical manifestation of what what had actually happened back then to the stitching so what what were you doing at that time like so you've gone to the counsellor and sort of identified it and then how did you find your way back to the stitching to your practice so a few things happened around um my work um one unfortunate thing was that my gp retired and so uh, i'd been referred to a new gp I'd been talking to her one day about, you know, the changes that I wanted to make and and how, you know, I was wanting to start being more connected to community down here. And she um, she's an interesting person and she's really also involved in uh, what's called social prescribing. So Instead of saying to somebody who might be anxious, oh, well, here's this medication, she is of the mind where she'd say to somebody, oh, well, you know, if you're feeling anxious, maybe what you need to do is um, uh, go and walk on the beach, you know, go for a walk in the bush or, you know, use that as a way of just feeling better every day. So just go and do that for 15 minutes a day. And so... She said, she said to me, oh, do you know about this organisation called The Rumpus that does um, community uh, Skillshare classes? So she said, you've got all these things that you can teach people, so why don't you think about connecting with them and um, doing some work in the community? So I contacted them and suggested that I could do some, um, you know, some embroidery or textile work. And so... That was really a great way into shifting from working in a more academic sense to um, working with smaller groups of people, um, being involved in in what's happening in the Illawarra. And so, you know, there I was at Coldale Markets with a little tiny 
piece of embroidery that I was making and I, I, I was actually selling bags at Coldale Markets because I thought I, I need to find another um, way of making a living or you know finding income and so this was another side project that I had and Jenny Briscoe Huff who um, is one of the people that runs Coldale Markets as well as Tender Funerals um, she'd come up and we had a conversation about what I was doing and she said oh I didn't know that you were a stitcher and she invited me to come to Tender because she said oh, I've got an idea about engaging artists with the work that we're doing at Tender Funerals and um, so come and come and have lunch and I want to have a conversation and so we I did and we talked about what artists do and she She's so great because she also talks about not knowing and she said, I don't know what we'll do, but, you know, it sounds like a really great place to start. So that was the beginning of that relationship. And um, and so what do you do there? Well, we, we got a grant to fund uh, myself and two musicians, so Malika Reese and Jodie Phyllis, who are both amazing musicians and composers and... Jodie and Malika started a community choir and I started the sewing circle and we had funding to work with families to create some sort of expression of um, art or music through their grieving process and what it might mean to use creativity in, in their funeral service or in a ritual private ritual so people who who have lost a loved one Mm. then come to the sewing circle what does it look like uh well it's a group of people that come together once a fortnight and again with covid that was all on hold we did we did have some zoom sewing um (laughs) over a couple of months when we couldn't physically meet well we've had a few different projects where i've taught Cantha Stitch, we did some shibori dyeing workshops and now we're working on uh, embroideries to make a quilt which will be used for tender. They can use it for viewings when people come into their space and they've got a really lovely space which is two rooms that are a bit like you know someone's home so there's couches and cushions and rugs and artwork we sit around and stitch people bring their lunch there's lots of chit chat and some people are working on their own projects Uh, some people are working on the community projects it's a social space so it's a space where people can come for support some of the people have are still you know in their grieving process but really, when you think about it, you know, it's not a an uncommon thing for um, people to have lost somebody. I mean, everybody experiences death in um, in some form or another, whether it's, um, you know, a partner or a parent or a child or, a, you know, a friend, a colleague. So, and tender is really about you know, talking about death as part of life, you know, so it's a it's an experience that everybody goes through. And so the, the sewing circle is really a place where people can come with whatever experience they've had. And so the, the stitching is really about learning techniques that will help somebody through that process. 
of grief. Yeah. Yeah. And what has it brought for you? It's a great community. Um, it's interesting. A lot of a lot of the work that I've been doing in my own practice has come out of that experience of being at tender. I've been making work with um, my father's hankies and I've had those for like 20 years and not really known what to do with them. So thinking about an object that that has that connection to a loved one or somebody who's died, I hadn't been able to make any work with those objects until I'd started that work with Tender. And so that's become part of that, that work. And it is very much about Canther Stitch. So I feel like a lot of the work that I'm doing now has come together in my practice through that sense of finding meaning in what, what it is to think about death but in a way that's a kind of celebration. So it's not about, you know, something morbid or, mm. or dark. It's actually about, you know, it's quite life-affirming mm. and making work that, that has that connection of those objects that have got a, a kind of lived experience. You know, everybody looks at those handkerchiefs and has a, a story. So people say, oh, I've got, you know or my dad's hankies, or, you know, I've got... There's someone that I know who has um, a collection of their family's hankies. So she has, like, three generations of hankies and, you know, over over 200, I think she wow. said. So, yeah, I know. So, so it immediately um, makes people want to tell you stories about their own, you know, <laughs> um, collections. And so it's that that way of inviting people's experiences and inviting them to think about their own experience through just something as simple as that. So there was a, a kind of parallel, I think, a parallel thing that happened where I was looking for some, you know, some classes that I could devise, some workshops that I could devise that were easy to teach and easy for people to learn. So it really had to be something that was possible to teach beginners. But then also what happened was it became a way for me to engage uh, with my own practice as well as to engage with other people and to then create a kind of space which was a bit about um, like a social stitching and so while I'm working with other people, it's also about a space for me to make this work. And it, so it's as much for me as for others. Right. So it's it's a, almost like the social interaction is where the healing was happening. Uh, yes. Yeah. And it's about, you know, coming, finding a space where I live and finding a space where I can work and, and somehow bringing all of that together. So I'm still very much, you know, I have my own practice as an artist, but what's happened, I think, in those years is that it's become the same space, it's become the same thing. So, yes, um, you know, I'm producing work to exhibit, but the work that I make for exhibition is also informed by 
the work that I'm doing with tender funerals, by, you know, the teaching of the workshops, um, you know, the interaction with other artists, you know, just with people that you encounter. It just becomes about that sense of the community where you live and work. And how did that help you recover? Um, well, I think it's about a grounding, you know, it's about a about being present in, you know, the space, the, the place where we live. I mean, and also to work, I'm in my studios here, I do a lot of teaching here, you know, I've exhibited here um, and met some amazing people, you know, who are, are kind of friends and, and colleagues as well as, you know, beyond. It's not like I just live in this bubble. I mean, it's far <laughs> from that. But what what's happened through making those connections is that, you know, there's a kind of grounding. I think it was through a process of um, talking and thinking and walking on the beach and being in the studio and just being quiet and giving myself time to really reflect on what all of that was. Have you made any work based on your experience in Nepal? I don't know. I think it's all it's all there. And I might make a conscious work that is about Nepal, but I think I think I'm making it all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see the work as being kind of separate. You know, it's it's all it's all there, and I think that's part of the work that we do as artists is that um, all of our experience comes to to bear in whatever it is that we're doing. And they're, they're always, you know, kind of in my... Um, they're often, you know, they're often there, kind of in my, in my heart and mind because, um, you know, I just think about... The fact that, you know, people are living really kind of hand-to-mouth um, and, you know, the, the people that rely on those, um, those trekkers and, you know, that whole um, industry, you know, it's really, um, it just, yeah, it just is such a reminder of how lucky we are. You know, as, as artists, we can contribute to... So being... Being involved with um, an organisation like Tender Funerals is great, and it's it's here. It's where I live. Um, you know, I I see those people. Um, they're part of the work that I do, and so that's real. You know, it feels very tangible, and you know, being able to help in a small way with those families in Nepal. You know, I I know them. I have a connection to them. So. So I think those small things in your life actually make make it possible to feel like you're making a difference. And so my artwork is part of that. You know, the work that I exhibit is part of that. But likewise, the work that I do with the community is part of that as well. And so I feel like it's quite... Um, integrated isn't a really good word but it feels like there's a really yeah there's a really good connection across all of those parts of my practice
What is one tip that you would give somebody, a listener, what's one thing that a listener can take away to do at home, you know, for their own creative practice or to introduce creativity somehow into their own life? Well, I would recommend finding some time in their day or in their week, whether that practice is sewing or walking or going out into the garden or singing. I I don't know that it's so much about what that practice is, but it's about finding a space on a regular basis. I mean, ideally, you know, in an ideal word, it would be great if you could have 15 minutes every day to do this one particular thing, um, or it might be an hour a week. But to build, I think there's, there's something about building a practice that really lets you have that time with yourself that's time outside of work outside of whatever it is you do you know whatever it takes up a lot of your time so work family you know obligations because as artists we we have that you know we have studio time um we have you know, time where you might write or read. And that's a, it's often a solitary practice that you do with, away from everything else. So if it's, if it's something that's new to you, then often that, that repetitive activity is a really great way to start with that. So whether it's walking, um, so it's like one foot after another, one step after another, whether it's stitching. So, you know, it's that same repetitive action. So the needle in and out and in and out, whether it's painting, you know, so one brush stroke or drawing. So it's finding that repetition, which is quite a calming activity. I like the word practice because it's what it is that you do, but it's also the action, you know, so it's the noun and the verb. And a practice is about repetition. So it's about doing that thing over and over again and not always at the expense of the outcome. So it's not really focusing on what your result's going to be. It's about that pathway or that journey. So if you can find a little practice every day and it doesn't matter what it is and you'll feel really great because what happens is you'll come back to that and it's there's a beautiful familiarity and ease of going back into that practice. Yeah, so um, that would be my, my tip. <laughs> a big thank you to Michelle Elliott, textile artist and teacher. This podcast, In the Making, is by Makeshift, a support and education agency connecting creativity and mental health for social change. Discover more about how creative practices are good for your health at makeshift.org.au and you can get 10% off our press play programs with the code in the making. Michelle teaches one of these classes, so if you're interested in learning embroidery or a stitching habit, why not check it out? 
Makeshift also offers mental health first aid courses in case you'd like to learn how to support your friends and family who may be going through a difficult time. For more, follow Makeshift on Instagram and Facebook. If this episode has brought up any issues or triggers for you, please contact Beyond Blue on 1300 22 4636. That's 1300 22 4636. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your favourite podcasting app or just tell your friends to listen. The theme song, Bring Down Those Walls, was composed and performed by Alana Stone. Additional music by Smith and the Devil. Our sound engineer is Chris Hancock. Logo and cover art are by Chiara Mucci. You can find links to their work in our show notes. Makeshift was co-founded by Caitlin Marshall and Lizzie Rose. I'm Jennifer Macy. Thanks so much for listening. This podcast was produced on the land of the Wadi Wadi people of the Darawal Nation. I acknowledge and pay my respects to the original storytellers and artists of this land. Gotta bring down